Welcome to America This Week with John Gersma, that's me, and Libby Rodney. Hey, Libby. Hey, John. How are you? How was your vacation? I uh, was great, and I've been back to work for a week, and I can't even remember it. But, uh, <laughs> but no, I had a, <laughs> had a great time. Um, if, if you are new to our, our program, uh, we are dropping this on, on Friday, July 15th. I hope everyone's getting ready for a great weekend. But um, Libby and I are pollsters, and um, we're at the Harris Poll, and we take a special look at American society and culture with a, a weekly pulse. And what we're going to do uh, in the next half hour is sort of take you through a, a few stories um, of some things that we found particularly interesting in, in the volumes of, of Harris research that's been conducted over the week. We'd also love for you guys to send us some polling ideas. So if you've got some things that you want us to cover on the show, you know, just drop us a note on uh, LinkedIn. That's Libby Rodney and John Gersma. Um, otherwise, uh, hit us on Twitter. So Libby, we're gonna get into wave 124 of America this week, weekly tracking since the pandemic began, when we had that great idea, you'll recall back to say, oh my gosh, things are changing so quickly, we better get on this. Um, but what we're gonna do is we're gonna go through five quick stories and uh, we're gonna talk first of all about the fastest pace of inflation in four decades and how that's making Americans feel. Um, maybe a story, story killer. Uh, they're not feeling great. Um, but we're also going to get into some other uh, things I think are particularly interesting. Uh, Libby, you know, the idea that gas prices that, you know, at one point topped $5 a gallon are now slowing Americans' appetites for new cars and our polling data. And we're also going to talk about the mental health crisis, right, that's entering the dormitories this fall. This is a really important new survey that I think should be a, a, of concern uh, to, to Americans, to universities, to parents, uh, as we look ahead to uh, the fall uh, semesters about to begin in the next month. And then for uh, the fourth story is, you know, Libby, how old is it to be too old to be president? And <laughs> what does that mean for the 2024 election? And lastly, Libby, I mean, tell us, what is this story about? I love this idea of prenups yeah, I mean, just for rich people. <laughs> no, I mean, this is becoming a signifier of generational understanding of what it means to be in a relationship. So prenups are just the new normal um, coming from millennials and Gen Zers. It's very interesting. All right, cool. Well, let's get into <laughs> it. So uh, first of all, let's talk a little bit about inflation from this week's numbers. Um, as you may have read... Uh, the CPI, which is the Consumer Price Index, jumped to 9.1% in June um, versus a year ago, marking that as the fastest pace of inflation in, in four decades. And when you look at inside the numbers, the, the really core challenge here with the CPI, and that's been driven uh, largely by rising energy prices and grocery prices related to um, the supply chain snarls, that has really created a lot of stress on American households, and we see that in our Harris data. Um, looking at, at the adjusted for inflation data, this is uh, macroeconomic data, but you can see, uh, as was covered in CNBC this week, uh, workers' hourly wages fell 1% during June and are down almost 4% uh, from a year ago. And so basically what's happening is that even though the, the employment market is still really strong, 
wages are just not keeping pace with these rising prices, and that's really putting a scrimp on, on consumers' budgets. And so we see that really in the data. Um, we found that there are 75% of Americans in our, in our weekly Harris Poll data that are concerned about affording their daily living expenses. And that is up eight points um, from just three weeks ago uh, in mid-June. Also, uh, we see that even half of, of employed Americans are now worried about losing their job. I mean, Libby, I don't know what you take by that. I found that really curious at, at 50%, and that's up five points as well from the same time period. I mean, the labor market's so strong. There seems to be a just a sense of foreboding. Yeah, I mean, that foreboding usually comes from the news and your friends and your family. So if everyone and the rising costs, it's just like, it just becomes that, you know, supermarket gas station conversation, you know, when the prices go up and people feel any inclinations to job insecurity, um, they start to worry about their own job and it starts to become really personal and it starts to have real implications to how their outlook changes and, and what their buying behavior changes and, and what they expect from their company and um, the companies that they buy from. So I think we're, whether or not we're in the recession, we're definitely in a recessionary mindset. I think that's the key, right? Because if you look at um, the labor statistics that also dropped this week, I mean, the U.S. added 372,000 jobs in June when they were only expecting 250,000. But, um, you know, that's the, the reality. I mean, the, the numbers are, are pretty, as you say, sort of worrying as people are sort of in this anticipatory sense of, of a recession. We had nearly nine out of 10 Americans, for instance, that are concerned about economy, inflation, and jobs. And we also uh, released last Friday our new Harvard-Harris poll, and that showed that the country's mood continued to worsen. We had uh, two questions, you know, do you believe the country's on the right or wrong track? 70% of Americans said that we're on the wrong track, and 71% said the American economy is on the wrong track. What was important about those, Libby, is that those are the worst that they have ever been in our poll since we started uh, back uh, in 2015 with this particular survey. I mean, what do you think is going on with just this overall mood? Yeah, I mean, so it's not my favorite subject, right? <laughs> the mood is, is bad, it's dismal, it's it's hard. I think, um, I think when we talk to clients about this, it can make you feel really stuck, right? You're like, oh, this is this is heavy. How do we get out of that? There's no quick turning point. Um, you know, getting out of recessions can happen quickly, but they can happen slowly. So I think the the big thing to think about is so how do you create psychological safety in this kind of environment? How do you help people? How do you give them assurance, right? As as we move through it. So you know, economists. The, the idea of when we're in a recession always lags because it quarterly results come out quarters later. But again, if we're in this recessionary mindset right now, I think there's a huge opportunity for marketers to think about psychological safety and signature moves. And like the, the best one, the casebook study that comes to mind is what Hyundai did in 2008 um, the, with the Hyundai insurance program, where they basically said, you know, they were going to offer to take back a car that is financed or leased by a worker who sub subsequently loses a job. So they put a lot of like, you know, they put their 
their mindset into the worker of someone who's scared to lose their job and say, we're going to give you full assurance. And then they back that by guarantees. And what's really impressive about Hyundai is like in the market of 2008, where like no car automotives grew, they grew by 2% um, and they grew profits by 5%. So just really being there was a big one. Um, the other psychologically safety icon that I like to use of late is Costco's uh, 150 hot dog as an indicator of inflation. <laughs> They've had that hot dog, John, as a, a dollar fifty since 1983, which is nearly 40 years, right? And so, but it's it's about the brand promise to them that they've had to create their own supply chain for the hot dog and everything to make sure that they can even sell a hot dog at that price. They make no money off of it. In fact, they lose money. But you know, the the idea is really to to tell and give the consumer a promise that something is safe, something's going to be there, and that they have your back, right? And so I think there's just a big opportunity for marketers right now to kind of create these icons, these signals of psychological safety, because a lot of the other marketers will start to get really quiet right now and will start to pull back. So, you know, I, I, I love that advice. <laughs> Yeah, but that, I think that's really important because, you know, what marketers are supposed to be doing is enhancing their relationships with their customers, right? And that means being there with them in the downtimes as well as the good. And, um, you know, that's a, a, a nice lesson. I mean, I know P&G was always really famous for um, investing heavily in their brands during the recession. I think what you're talking about is sort of how do you invest heavily in the, into your relationships? And I think that's really sound advice. Yeah. Well, speaking of cars, um, this is fascinating too. So here's a quick example of the knock-on effect of what happens when there's stress in one category or, or sector and how that can spill over into another. And this is a brand new uh, Harris Poll survey with time where we found that high gas prices are actually suppressing or discouraging rather Americans from buying new cars. Um, in our survey, we found that only 10% of respondents who had bought a new car in the past six months, um, of that group, nearly half of them, 47%, said that um, high gas prices were a reason why. So basically, lower car sales, the reason is, is that gas is really um, causing them to sort of pause. And that's a real stark difference from the, the car squeeze that we had sort of seen uh, during the pandemic with supply chain. So what, what is interesting in, in this too, I think is that new car owners considered gas prices as much as the cost of the car when making their decision. You know, for instance, for those who purchased a car in the past six months, gas prices were pretty much equal in consideration to either the car price or the type at 55 versus 56% respectively. And in addition, 46% said fuel economy mattered as well as also 44% the type of fuel. So clearly what goes in the tank is having a huge impact right now on, on the actual, whether you buy that product or not. Um, and then potentially too, in terms of your selection of car type, which I, I found really interesting because I'm a guy who's at an age that can remember uh, being a little kid at the gas crisis in the 70s when all Americans sort of sh uh, got rid of their big Cadillacs and, and their big cars and pickups and went into the, the compact cars. Um, but what is interesting in this is that Americans are not getting off the road, 
right? Um, Enterprise Holdings found that two thirds of their customers plan to go on road trips this year, um, albeit 59% said smaller ones closer to home. And also for the car rental economy, cost uh, and environmental concerns aren't as important. When it came to car rentals, consumers are least likely to consider the type of fuel um, economy. So that's kind of interesting uh, in and of itself, right? Which is that we're finding these situational experiences, you know, travel is still super robust this summer. Um, you know, Americans want to get out and, and reclaim the, the two years that they've sort of perceptually lost. But Libby, what do you think this means the, in terms of the car sale squeeze and if it's over or whether you think there will be big sales in the future? Yeah, I was so interested to hear this data because as someone who's looking for a car myself, as my family, I was like, yes, maybe the squeeze is over and we can go out and get cars because, you know, it's been it's been a really challenging market. And so I did some more research on that. And, you know, the I apparently the new cars there, you know, the reason that there was such a squeeze is because of the global microchip shortage. But also now there's um, cascading supply chain issues that have continued to drive up prices. So, you know, mm. data and analytic parts, components, paint, wiring, it's all still having those implications. So even though more people aren't buying yet, there still should be a bit of a squeeze on the new market. But I thought, John, what you were saying about the 70s was so interesting. That did happen for a short period in 2008, too, where people started to downgrade their, you know, Hummers. Remember when Hummers were a thing? <laughs> and, and like, You're taking me get, back with the Hummer. Right. And like get smaller cars because, you know, the gas price was so high. I think what's really interesting now is that we can... Bloomberg just came out today talking about um, we are at the 5% tipping point of electric vehicles in the U.S. And Bloomberg has studied 13 other or 19 other countries. And when you get 5%, it's actually pretty easy to scale up to a quarter of the population um, when it comes to new cars. So it's it's like an exciting factor that you in the U.S. right now, 5% of new cars um, are electric vehicles and then it's it's like an interesting thing to think about if a quarter of new car sales become electric vehicles in the future um and there's a lot of reasons to think that they could be because like the biden administration um is putting a ton of money billions of dollars into creating infrastructure for electric vehicles and things like that so it's like mm. maybe this is a bigger tipping point to also a new future versus like 2008 mm. We got rid of Hummers, but we still went back to SUVs after the recession was over. You know, so it's. it's I see what you're saying. That's really interesting. That consumers might might pivot out of this and use high gas prices as sort of that linchpin to say, "Hey, maybe maybe it's time for electric," as they continue yeah. to scale. Hmm, really interesting. Hey, let's talk about a couple other things. So, one of the things that. Um, I know you and I are, are really proud of at Harris is all the work that we do uh, with our clients and, and, and pro bono work studying America's mental health. And we do this with uh, CBS Health. We do this with the American Psychological Association and also the CDC. But um, this new data uh, that we released this week with Fortune, I, I thought was uh, both especially compelling and also especially concerning. And uh, what it finds, it's a study of, of mental health and college students. And what we found is that 60% of college students told us that they're living with mental 
health issues. And at the same time, as you go deeper into our data, clearly, you know, universities have scaled up and ramped up their, their mental health um, sort of services, you know, given the pandemic and, and other issues. But really what you see inside these numbers, Libby, is that most schools are really unprepared to address what's really happening. And um, I, I thought this was really interesting. One of the charts I know you and I are kind of looking at right here that came out of the time Harris Poll survey. I mean, didn't you find this fascinating that the, the difference between um, college students and the general population, first of all, college students uh, reported their anxiety levels at 43% versus the general public at only 29%. And we also asked them uh, to talk about whether they felt uh, depressed, uh, that they had depression or felt depressed. College students, 33% versus general pop at, uh, at 27%. But what gets uh, even more sort of concerning is that among students that told us they have received counseling less than a third reported using the mental health services provided by their college or university. So it sounds like, you know, they're, they're doing therapy, they're, they're doing their, their own counseling, but they're doing that off campus. Um, and in fact, 58% of students, and here might be the reason why, 58% uh, of students reported being put on a wait list at their college's counseling services. So I, I thought that was, you know, really, really compelling. I kind of just let's pause there and say, what do you kind of see inside this data? Yeah, I mean, I think it's so interesting because one of the generational identifiers of Gen Z is the priority of mental health. Um, mm. And also like the situations, right, in which why why is there anxiety and depression so, depression so high? And it's like, well, coming to age in this era of, so many existential, existential crisis or, you know, doing gun training at school and then also needing yeah. to perform. Like there, there's just so many things that are on their plates that are different. Like, because when we act, when people go through this data, they're like, oh, isn't that just a life stage, right? But it's, it, it's hitting them differently and they're prioritizing it differently. But what's interesting is that the college and academic world has yet to respond, you know, because mm. Mental health is a key priority, yet almost six in ten of them are on the wait list for colleges or for to get mental mm -hmm. health help. So you just think that it would be become a much bigger part of the campus experience of understanding where these um, students are, how do they learn, how is mental health a part of overall academic, you know, well-being and understanding. Because if you're that anxious, it's also going to be hard to learn and absorb. And grow right so it just seems like a right. giant priority for colleges and universities to hit on i i completely agree and i, I think they have focused so heavily on this and as you say in their brochures and in their and in their nationwide rankings but it sounds like the actual delivery is really falling short right if you've got six and ten college kids saying you know they, they have uh uh, are living with mental health issues and nearly the same number at 58% said that the students are being put on a wait list. There's a yeah. real gap between sort of what universities say they're saying and, and what they're really doing. So yeah. I think that's something to focus on, right? And it's interesting, like, um, so the, the Chronicle of Higher Education recently came mm -hmm. out with an article about this. 
Um, and talked about how college students are kind of questioning the point of college. And even before the pandemic in 2019, they did a study about uh, where they had roughly one in three college students felt alienated from the college experience. And so they did tons of research digging into why do they feel alienated? And a lot of it is because they found out that college felt very tra uh, transactional to students. Like it felt like, oh, this is just a place where I get the grades so that I can get the job that I want, so I can get the financial security I need, versus, you know, this is an experience and, and we're taking care of your holistic education and understanding. And so to try to like move it away from that transactional category of like, you just go get the grades and, and go get the job, like colleges have to do a better job at thinking about that whole person experience. Otherwise they really lose the, the, the potential of college just being deregulated to not being as big of a life stage moment, you know, and more of a, a qualifier um, that we're seeing it become as it becomes more transactional. That's fascinating. Um, I'll make a note to Jack, our executive producer, to maybe put this survey in the show notes and also that that Chronicle of Higher Ed article. That's super interesting um, and concerning. Boy. Um, so let's talk about two two last stories before we roll into the weekend here. So how old is too old, Libby, <laughs> to be POTUS? Um, and, you know, how might that impact the 2024 election, uh, specifically if there's a, a Biden versus Trump ticket? Um, so we've got a couple data sets here. Uh, one, let's start with um, sort of uh, some data uh, that we featured from our brand new Harvard-Harris poll uh, that was covered this week in the New York Times. So one of the things that we, we found just for some context is, that, you know, a year and a half into his first term, President Biden is already more than a year older than Ronald Reagan was at the end of his two terms. And to consider this, you know, if he mounts another campaign in 2024, President Biden would be 86 at the end of his tenure. So we surveyed that question in, in the new Harvard-Harris poll, and we found that um, nearly two-thirds, 64% of voters, believed that he is too old to be president, including 60% of respondents that are 65 and older. So that was pretty, that was pretty stark. Um, but then we played this out in, an, in another survey that, that we featured uh, with Axios in an Axios-Harris poll survey. 71% of all voters do not want Biden to run for re-election. And the plurality say it's because he is a bad president. But similarly, 61% do not want Donald Trump to run in 2024 either. Uh, with a third each saying that Trump is erratic, he will divide America, and he's responsible for January 6th. So sort of some pretty pretty hard um, calls on, on both sides of the aisle there against both these candidates. And what I thought most interesting, Libby, is that six out of 10 American voters said they would consider voting for a moderate independent candidate uh, for president if both Biden and Trump ran on a ticket against each other. Libby, what do you think is going on here? I mean, I, I want to connect this to a story that's in the Times today that talks about younger voters feeling just completely fed up with their older leaders. What's driving their frustration? Is this values driven? Is this context? Is this the pandemic? I mean, what's going on? I think it's a lot of things. So 
other other like research we've done recently that we've kind of highlighted before is that you know politicians you know the leaders of today they don't understand technology the way gen z and millennials do they don't understand their value sets like there's just clear divisions like oh you know i don't want big tech to rule the future but politicians don't understand the future either so here we are and there's a need for a lot of change i don't know john if you've recently seen the um the I voted sticker that got uploaded by everyone. It's like a six legged spider that looks like MTV made it. And it's all, it's, it's crazy. It's like this really crazy sticker that will be available when you vote for, um, I think New York city elections, uh, in the fall, but it's, 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 it's kind of like punk rock era. You know, it's, it's this idea of like, we need a lot of change. Um, and the people who are in charge right now don't understand it or they're generationally out of touch. And I think a lot of that has to do with education. I think a lot of it has to do with the financial um, insecurity that younger people feel hmm. because of student loans and other debts. And I think a lot of it has to do with the values that are associated to diversity, the values that are associated to climate change. I mean, people, you know, young people we see in our research don't want to have children because they don't know what kind of world they're bringing them into. Like there needs to be a person in there who represents hope to them. And right now, um, you know, you don't see that with those two candidates, the way that Americans are responding. And, and just to put it in some frank, maybe sort of non-PC terms, don't younger people just feel like like these older presidents, these guys are going to be dead anyway, so they don't care, right? I mean, are they looking for <laughs> well, a candidate? Well, I just wonder, are they looking yeah. for a candidate that, that's going to live their lives and actually going to be going to be relatable? Because I mean, perhaps that, but also like people love Bernie Sanders, right? Um, yeah. In some ways, like the younger population. So I think it's more like they're just really out of touch. I think when younger Americans look at um, the age of those candidates, they're saying, hey, they don't care about the climate change because they're not going to be around. You know, they don't care about these things that are really, they don't understand technology because they didn't grow up in technology. So, you know, I think there's just going to be a reckoning around youth getting activated and involved in politics and hopefully changing the the game in that way. Because there's, there needs to be a whole version of new candidates that kind of come to the table that, that meet these needs, right? Um, and I, I think it's useful to even bring it back to last week, what we talked about with the American dream being dead. Like a third of Americans think the American dream is, is dead. And that's uh, like a majority of them think it's that dead because American politics are too polarized and we can't come together. So we really need someone who is able to bridge together narratives and bring people together. And it doesn't seem like it's gonna come from someone who, who doesn't understand the things that are really impacting youth today in America. Hmm, no, great, great thoughts. And let's watch this space, because I find that stat that six in 10 uh, would vote for a moderate independent candidate if, if both Biden and Trump ran is absolutely fascinating. So there could be some big disruption coming to both parties. Um, Okay, so let's finish on a, on a high note. Uh, what is going on with prenups? So prenups aren't just for rich people anymore, apparently. I don't know if it's a high note. I, at least I find this quite interesting. Um, so what's, what's kind of behind the story here is that, you know, what's happening is that more com, com, couples are entering into prenup 
and those used to be sort of reserved for the uh, the wealthy folks, the folks with the trust funds and all that, but it's they're going mainstream. And we found this in this new Harris poll that of Americans who have been married or are currently engaged, um, you know, nearly one in five, 15% report that they've signed a prenup. But what really gets fascinating is that, uh, remember that's 15%. Gen Z reported it at levels of 41%, millennials at 34% versus Gen X at 10 and boomers at 5%. And overall, this is continues to sort of rise uh, pretty significantly over the past decade. But that that Gen Z split on prenups, I thought, was super interesting. First of all, Libby, what's what's what do you think's going on with that? I mean, I just think that you know people. So I think a prenups were considered a, a taboo, a sign of of you know you don't love me. But now they become just a, a financial tool, right? And and I think okay. what's so fascinating about Gen Z is Gen Z is like an extremely financially fiscal generation. They care about financial responsibility. They care about financial wealth they, they, because they've been buried and because they are the echo generation of Gen X, who is very fiscally responsible and also skeptical of things. So I think people are in a healthy way saying, hey, this is just a tool to mediate what's coming um, up. And they, they're just a little, more realistic because they're a very realistic generation. So are millennials hmm. and, and you know the younger ones. But it's like, hey, not all relationships work out. You never know what's going to happen. But this is just a, simply a financial tool to get us prepared in case they don't. Um, That's super interesting. Re- realistic versus idealistic, I guess. Because what you're saying is held up in the numbers. 40% of married or engaged people between 18 and 34 have signed prenups in our Harris survey versus 13% of those 45 to 54. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that's interesting. Overall, four in 10 adults now support the use of prenups um, in 2022 compared to 20 years ago, only 28% said that prenups make smart financial sense. So it seems to be a a taboo, a taboo breaker again around, I guess, as you're saying, pragmatism. I I find that yeah, and it's probably been democratized. Like I imagine it's much easier to create a prenup. There's I haven't looked it up, but I'm sure there's ways to create free prenups online. Like I bet all of these things that once were considered a only for the wealthy or then repositioned as like a taboo, you know, once they're opened up and they're you're you're able to access it at a low price point and to do it. There's a lot of times where you say, okay, I, I will do that. There's a long, there's a big point in history where only rich people had wills, you know? Um, and yeah. now much more people have wills because it's been democratized in, in that way as well. So it might just be a financial tool we use as part of an ongoing relationship mediation. Well, it's definitely <laughs> what seems to be happening. The, the last part of this story is we asked unmarried Americans uh, about prenups and 52% of unmarried Gen Z would likely sign a prenup before getting married versus 22% of boomers, right? A 30 point swing. That is really significant. So it seems like there might be a a startup here. Maybe we need a Venmo for prenups. Yeah. Well, what's interesting about that too is that boomers 
answering the question have probably been married before. So you think that they might have a higher answer. <laughs> well said. Well, well played. Yeah. Hey, listen, uh, l- let's leave it. We're, we're past yeah. our half hour, but um, I always, as always, I really enjoy these conversations with you. And uh, for our listeners, we'd love if you could give us uh, some support. Uh, with a review, but but even more importantly, please drop us a line at Libby Rodney on LinkedIn um, or John Gersma on LinkedIn or Twitter um, with a poll idea because uh, we'd we'd love to hear from the public, from our listeners, and and, and get some new ideas for some content. But um, I guess we'll leave it there. Libby, any last things? No. Everyone have a great weekend and um, talk to you next week. All right. And go get your prenups, people. Yeah. <laughs> Have a great weekend, Libby. Bye. You too, John.